0: Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Folka.
2: Yeah, here he is. That's me. And uh, we're off to the races with another version of Talking Biotech, number 23. And uh, today's episode is really pretty different because we're not going to focus necessarily on genetics and on uh, biotechnology. I think that it's really important for us to keep in mind that biotechnology innovation is one tool in our toolbox, and it's one way for us to solve problems that really are important to agriculture and to feeding more people. At the same time, these applications can be more effective if they're applied in a background that makes sense. And so when we think about some of the efforts, such as those by Professor Graham Martin who we'll talk to today. We see that there's opportunities to be able to employ novel strategies, sometimes really simple ones, to solve some really important agricultural questions. And they do have benefits in uh, being able to raise crops, maybe in places with very little water, be able to more ethically raise animals and uh, provide other benefits for biodiversity in the communities that use these food resources. So Professor Martin uh, has this uh, Future Farm 2050 project, which I urge you to look up. Take a look at that on YouTube. Um, it's uh, You'll see that what's really cool about the podcast today is that we don't walk down the uh, kind of the stereotypic paths here. We don't break things into... Uh, Organic and uh, biotechnology, whatever. This is about solving problems using creative mechanisms. And uh, my hat's off to Dr. Martin because a really wonderful interview. And oh, by the way, I received a request through email to talkingbiotech at gmail.com to interview Dr. Martin because he was very inspirational to uh, a, a listener uh, when she was in school and she said he was one of the best professors she's ever had and could we get him on talking biotech so this all started with uh, fan mail Professor Martin uh, and thank you for a very wonderful interview so we'll start that right now. Today we're going to talk to Dr. Graham Martin who is a professor and chair in the School of Animal Biology At the University of Western Australia in Perth, he's also the leader of the UWA Institute for Agriculture, which is uh, part of this Future Farm Project 2050. And if you look on YouTube or other places under the Future Farm Project, you can learn a little bit about how they're using some unique methods to attempt farm sustainability that also can function in uh, animal welfare and other aspects that are important to agriculture. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Martin. Thanks, Kevin. I guess the best place to start out is that when you go through all of the online information on the um, future uh, farm project, it's, it's all really interesting and super edgy with respect to some of our big themes today. But your roots are really in, in basic biology and in reproductive biology in a variety of animal systems. And could you tell us a little bit about your research and what happens there?
1: Yeah, with pleasure. I, um, I spent most of my career studying how the brain of the sheep interprets its environment and then uses the information it gets um, in association as well about the information it receives about the state of the body uh, to to formulate a reproductive strategy and guarantee reproductive success so that means understanding how the animal lives in its normal life in the field and and what signals it receives from the environment and that means things like day length which or which are not really surprising because it 's a long long known story. But it also means for animals like sheep, which are very social animals that live in large groups, that they actually are surrounded by a very rich milieu of social stimuli, and in particular pheromones. And so I look at how pheromones affect the reproductive system. And the third thing I look at in great detail is nutrition, because the animals respond to nutritional signals very quickly and change the way their reproductive system operates.
2: And that's really interesting to a plant biologist because when we think about plants, when you're rooted in one place, we're always thinking about the way that the environment remodels gene expression and remodels physiology and don't really apply that to animals too much. Things tend to be more time-based. And so what are some of the major examples of, like if we talk about photoperiod, for instance, what's a good example of how photoperiod might influence reproductive capacity?
1: So animals like uh, sheep have a long evolutionary history uh, of living in various seasonal environments and so in much the same way as plants they have to organise their annual cycles around the annual changes in the environment and the photo period is the the most obvious cue to to use because it's just simply not affected by external factors. And uh, so sheep are, are what we call short day breeders so their reproductive system switches on when the days are becoming shorter during the fall or, as we say, the autumn. And so their brain measures the length of the night, in actual fact, and sees that the length of the night is getting longer and then is is geared up through evolutionary history to begin the reproductive process. This takes into account that it has a, a pregnancy of five months and the whole evolutionary plan has been uh, to make sure that the newborn are born at a nice time of the year when there's plenty of feed around because... Uh, These are mammals and they they feed their young with milk and basically if the mother gets it wrong and is is trying to lactate at the wrong time of the year she will die and of course so will her offspring and that's the end of the genetic line. So there's a really strong pressure on these animals to breed at a certain time of the year. Uh, Clearly this is driven by genetics because um, the genes control many of the processes. In addition we have differences between genotypes so some genotypes are more dedicated to photoperiod than others uh, depending on their evolutionary history and to some degree how much domestication they've been through
2: i see and so if is there a uh, um, is there a a role of domestication and maybe humans trying to force reproductive habits that has uh, really resulted in maybe negative effects during animal husbandry
1: Oh, absolutely, no doubt. Uh, I think the classic one, in in fact, is is in your home country. It's the North American Holstein dairy cow, which has been selected in a very single-minded way now for for several decades for massive milk production. And the consequence of that now is it's become the most infertile farm animal in the world and needs a lot of pharmaceutical help and nutritional help to get pregnant. And so clearly uh, we need to rethink some of these extremes that we've driven our animals to.
2: And since milk production is really tied to reproduction, uh, how much does the—and and, and people who are in milk production would say that cows are extremely sensitive to their environment and that milk production is intimately tied to the health and the, even the psychology of, of the animal— and so how, how can farmers or milk producers, or how have they, rearranged their production facilities using environmental stimuli to maybe help enhance those situations for the animals?
1: They've, they've begun to work really hard on those issues in recent times. Um, I've done some, a lot of work with the University of Bristol in the UK where there's a, a very strong animal welfare group that deal with dairy animals and the issues associated with dairy animals. And, and so they have worked very hard to modify the environment to make the, the environment much more cow-friendly, uh, to have management practices that are much more cow-friendly. Uh, there's a deepening understanding of the role of nutrition in controlling the reproductive system in dairy cattle uh, in, and in particular, way the, the nutritional signals uh, switch on and off genes associated with reproduction and associated with the interaction between lactation and reproduction because lactation is, is basically a situation where the animal throwing away kilograms of protein and kilograms of fat and kilograms of, of carbohydrate every day. And so it's a massive drain on the body, and this affects reproductive activity. So we're looking at, at a lot of these things. Uh, there are now... You know, there's good evidence that we 're getting epigenetic effects as well that sort of transmitted down through the generations, uh, and this is a, another exciting area where there 's a potential revolution in, in the way we, we manage these intensively housed
2: animals and what 's a good example of maybe a nutritional cue that animals are paying attention to
1: so the the brain is the primary area that controls reproduction, and um, we, most of my work 's been done with male sheep and, and that 's because there's a lot of sheep in Australia I suppose but also because males are fundamentally similar' simple compared to females uh, they don't have cycles and the gonads hang outside the body so they're easy to measure um, <clears throat> but what we know now is that is that the brain receives signals from the body uh, about about how much fat is in the body and about how much glucose is available to the body so we've we've got fat producing a hormone called leptin, and leptin travels into the brain and, and is transported into the brain and, and affects reproductive centres. In addition, insulin, which is involved in glucose homeostasis, uh, is, is, is travels into the brain as well. We used to think for a long time that, glu- that insulin didn't get into the brain, but now we know that it does because we can measure the changes in, in brain fluids. <clears throat> and these both of these hormones uh, tell the reproductive centres of the brain what is the status of the body? What is the metabolic status of the body? What are the reserves of carbohydrate and, and, and lipid uh, that are there? And this, this, for a female in particular, is important because it tells the female brain whether it can afford to support lactation. So they're the sort of signals that we see.
2: Well, that's very interesting, especially with respect to insulin, because it would seem to me to be uh, too large to pass the blood-brain barrier. So are there specific transporters, or how is that homeostasis maintained
1: so leptin certainly has a specific transporter insulin seems to somehow rather get across the brain and it is a large molecule and and that was why for a long time the dogma held us back on this about um i I don't really know about a transporter I, i don't think there is one the The concentration in cerebrospinal fluid is about a tenth of what it is in the blood. So it doesn't all get across there, but you can still see the changes in patterns uh, in the the, the cerebrospinal fluid that you see in blood, for example, after a, a meal. So the signal definitely gets across.
2: Hmm. That's really interesting. Never, never even thought of that. That's, I guess the other way to think about all of this in in an amalgam is that here you're paying attention to these environmental cues that shape important decisions for animal uh, reproduction that can really allow humans to be better uh, stewards of animal health and sensitive to animal welfare. And how, uh, how is this really translated into the, your, your project of the future farm 2050 project?
1: So this is a a really key question kevin the the future farm 2050 project i'll I'll come back to a bit later on but just briefly it has sort of four major pillars of activity one is is crop production one is livestock production the third is uh people looking after people and the fourth is biodiversity and environment so livestock production is one of the four pillars on the farm and we we uh we we have a little sort of three-word slogan for this. We call it clean and green and ethical livestock management. And so what happened about 15 or so years ago was we were at the university sitting back and looking at how we were progressing with respect to our animals and, and, uh, and began to have some sort of concerns about things, I guess illustrated by the, the issues with the North American dairy cow, but also with other, other situations around here in terms of our local, our local markets and our local pressures. And we began to realise that we needed to, to rethink a little bit about our animal management. So we use the words clean and green and ethical. Clean means uh, less reliance on, on hormones, drugs, antibiotics and so on. Uh, clearly we still need some of those things for managing animal health. But not using them to simply manipulate the animal and forcing it to do what we want it to do. Uh, green means looking after the environment and the environmental footprint of, of livestock is is very topical around the world. Uh, in particular with respect to carbon emissions. And ethical means looking after animal welfare. So thinking about animal welfare as, as part of, of the marketing of livestock products as much as, as, as looking after the welfare of the animals themselves. Basically, animals that are happy are more productive. And uh, so we need to, to be using practices that, are, that sort of don't have major ethical issues.
2: And, and maybe we could spend a minute on some of this that when especially when you talk about clean and green um, let 's start with clean is that a lot of um, American producers and you say that you know the um, uh, the difference that you are striving for here at the farm is because of inspired by the north American uh, way that that cows are, milk cows are are uh, producing, And, uh, you know, it's funny because I was in Wisconsin before Florida and in Florida, we have an excellent dairy industry as well. And when you talk to dairy farmers and folks in the industry, they really have a different connection to their livestock than do, say, beef cattle um, uh, razors. And uh, that they do feel that they're providing exceptional husbandry and that their animals are extremely happy and they have to be that way in order to be most productive. And so what are some of those differences? Is it really just hormones or antibiotics or what are some of the other potential differences? So uh,
1: I I have colleagues who work in the dairy industry in in the U.S., Mm -hmm. including at Gainesville. Um, So... I think that your, your, your view and your interpretation is absolutely correct. Dairy farmers tend to know their animals quite well and much more than, than ranchers, for example, who have extensive operations uh, to the point where some dairy farmers even have names for their animals. So, you know, you've got a situation where they really do uh, identify with the animals and look after them as well as they can. But what's been happening in the background is this very strong genetic selection, quite mm. single-mindedly, for, for milk production. And that's led to some pretty difficult consequences in, in, the, in the current industry. I don't think the farmers are to blame for that. I think they're following economic drivers uh, because that's where their profitability lies. Uh, we, we were driven towards the, the, the concept of clean and green and ethical management, not just by, by dairy cattle, but also by issues in our own industry. Uh, we have some pretty horrible practices that have been standard here in the sheep industry in Australia for a long time. Uh, we have also controversial stories about live shipping because we put a lot of animals onto boats and send them to to Indonesia or ar- Arabian countries for for slaughter. And uh, so there's a there's a bad feeling around some of these situations. You can prove very clearly that the animals on the boats are actually quite happy and do quite well. But when they arrive at the other end, they're not treated as nicely as they would be if they're living if they are being slaughtered in Australia, for example. So we have a lot of controversy ar- around the ethical sides of that. On the clean side, <clears throat> um, we, basically the markets are telling us, the markets that we sell into, which are pretty high-priced markets, we, we can't afford to sell to, to poor countries, unfortunately, the high-priced markets tell us that they don't want chemical contamination of the food, they don't want hormonal contamination. And so our response is, is to listen to those um, market signals and that means just reducing our reliance on, on hormone induction of, of, of reproductive cycles and so on. So what do we do? Well, in, in the sheep industry, we're a bit lucky because we can use pheromones. So uh, the, the male sheep produces a pheromone that will switch on the reproductive system of, sw- of female sheep within seconds and they ovulate a couple of days later. So this can be used to control reproductive cycles very elegantly, very inexpensively. Um, and without the use of of hormone injections or implants or whatever else I find this really quite interesting because I seem to have spent most of my life studying how hormones control reproduction with a view to using hormones to control reproduction now I've reversed my my direction Um, but at the same time the basic information is what we use to, to help us to understand these things
2: that's, I'm really glad I talked to you about this today because recently there's been a little bit of controversy here in the States about what um, which fast food chains are using antibiotic-free meat. And it really got me to start to think about how much antibiotic is actually present in food versus if it's used in the cattle. And so do you have some ideas about when we're eating something, say you go to a fast food chain, is there actually detectable or biologically relevant levels of hormones that are present in the food?
1: That's a bit outside my field. Uh, I don't study the sort of food uh, safety side of things very much, but uh, I can give you some some indications of, of why it's a, an important area of investigation. Um, I was in Thailand at a meeting uh, a few years ago, and the Thais have, uh, for a long time, been importing milk from China to make yogurt. And they got a big shipment from China that had so much antibiotic in the milk that they couldn't, the yogurt wouldn't survive, that the, the yeast wouldn't work, the bacteria wouldn't work, rather, the <laughs> lactobacillus. So, you know, you have those sorts of stories and think, wow, that's pretty heavy. Um, there is a lot of antibiotic used in animal feeds. Uh, in animal feeds for for dairy cattle and pigs, chickens, for example, um, and that worries me a little bit. It it worries me as much about the contamination of food for humans as as it does about the, the risks of antibiotic resistance. Uh, and we we sort of we're not treating our antibiotics very cleverly, are we? And uh, so, I think those sorts of issues concern me quite a lot.
2: Yeah, I think that's, uh, and those are all welcome areas to think about because of the uh, resistance. And it's something that on many levels, when we overuse a good technology, we find that mother nature finds a way. And uh, it, it one side causes us to help innovate a little bit faster, but sometimes innovation is sometimes taking a step backwards and looking at the way we do things uh, more holistically. And and I know that that's been at least part of the function and maybe we should before we get into that maybe we should switch gears into the green portion of the future farm and uh is this this is pertaining mainly pertaining to uh, greenhouse emissions of methane that uh, are from sheep or uh, what else are there what else is involved in that particular area yeah, this is a this
1: is a particularly hot area for us at the moment um sheep sheep and cattle uh produce methane which is 20, 25 times stronger than CO2 as a greenhouse gas. And it's, um, it's probably, in Australia anyway, about 12% of our agricultural emissions in greenhouse gas equivalents. Uh, agriculture's probably sorry, 12% of the total Australian emissions, so about two-thirds of the total agricultural emissions. It's very similar to CO2 production by transport, for example, in terms of magnitude. It's still tiny compared to uh, emissions from coal-fired power stations and and gas and oil used for electricity generation, but it is significant and needs to be addressed. In addition, methane that escapes from the body uh, is carbon that is lost in the body, and if it can be retained in some intelligent way, then, of course, it will improve productivity. So methane is produced in the rumen during fermentation, and it is, is burped out, so it comes out through the mouth. Uh, so that always makes me laugh, and I see cartoons of, of animals with gas coming out the back end saying this is methane emissions, but it's not true at all. It's out in the front. So we've we've addressed this program very seriously. Um, We've, we've got three main avenues of interest. One is that there are Australian native plants that we have ignored for, for the last couple of hundred years that can be consumed by animals, and when they do, they reduce methane emissions. They change the fundamental biochemistry of the rumen and, and shift uh, the, the, the carbon management system away from methane. Uh, so that's been very, very exciting area, and that's a major part of our, our research program on the farm. These plants have a... a other advantages as well they are uh, evergreen plants so they stay green throughout the year whereas most pasture species die off in in our summer and autumn Uh, so they provide green feed at all all times of the year many of these plants also have antihelmintic properties which means that when the the animals consume them they help to combat gastrointestinal worms And, and this has become a very important issue because the, the drugs that we've been using for the last 50 years to control worms are now becoming fairly useless. The resistance is growing there just as it has grown with antibiotic resistance in, in human health. So, we've got, we've got in fact three examples of resistance, haven't we? We've got the, the antibiotic resistance, we've got the anthelmintic resistance, and in addition, uh, in farming systems in Australia, we've got resistance of weeds to herbicides. So, you know, evolutionary forces are pretty hard to hold back. And uh, so these animals and plants and bugs are, are finding ways around our, our chemical tricks. So the methane situation is, is combating that by, by changing the diet, by providing alternative forages. Um, also, we can do genetic selection. Uh, so we can select animals uh, on the basis of their methane emissions and have lower, lower emitting animals. And we can also produce food additives to add to diets... Uh, for example, for dairy cattle, that will also reduce emissions. So that's our sort of three-pronged attack on, on methane.
2: What's really interesting about it is that here you're using genetic variability that's maybe naturally present inside the germplasm of the sheep and then, or the, or the uh, livestock, and then also coupling that to the genetic variation that's present in plants that they'll accept as food. And uh, a really, really cool integrated plan.
1: Yeah, it's, it's actually become really exciting, and, and, and our whole thinking about how these animals interact with their environment is changing. So we've, we've actually um, we've stolen the term pan-genome for this. Uh, we, we use the term pan-genome to, to describe the interactions between the genome of the animal, in this case a sheep, the genome, and there are multiple genomes, in the rumen of all the bacteria, and then the genome of a plant. So you've got three genomes interacting here, and, and the consequences is variation in methane output. And you can select in all three places to improve the system.
2: And and from, you know and by training, I'm a gene jockey, and I, I'm very interested always in ways that you can maybe add a gene or add an add a alteration to uh, enhance one of those levels. And is there any uh, thoughts, or is there any a- a- um, active biotechnology going on in either the animals, plants, or microbes?
1: So, so biotechnology um, is like like for you. It's part of our core business at the university. Um, so we we're always looking at biotechnology. A lot of it is is because we use it to to make investigations. And so my colleagues, for example, who work on microbial populations in the rumen of sheep, they they they're, they're biotech wizards, uh, and they do a lot of work in that area, um, trying to understand. Uh, the, the genes that are involved and it's and it's an incredibly complex situation because the rumen contains so many thousands of different species and billions of numbers of them and so it's a it's it's pretty tricky working in there uh, so we use biotech there we use biotech clearly to investigate how genes work um, and to and to identify genes that are involved in critical aspects of of the production system uh, because then we can move to to genomic selection rather than phenotypic selection for some of our important characteristics.
2: And what about, uh, so we didn't really touch much on the uh, crop side of this equation yet. Of your you know, four-legged stool here, we really just covered one. <laughs> but what are some of the highlights of the cropping systems that you're using to enhance sustainable production at the farm?
1: Okay, so the, um, the cropping system in, in our environment is 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 what we call dry land cropping. So basically, we, we have a, a fairly small amount of rainfall every year, about 400 millimetres, which is... I can't remember what that is in inches these days.
2: I don't know. <laughs> Probably I <did>. about... Uh, <laughs> Like, like, a, like a maybe uh, 16 inches or so. 400 yeah, millimeters. No, that. 400 millimeters yeah. is, you know, I, I do metric really well, and I do English really well, but my conversions are a little rusty. So you, I think you're yeah. looking at, uh, so your 30 centimeters is a foot, which is 300 millimeters, which is so about, yeah, about 16 inches.
1: And it comes in the middle of the year during, during what is effect- effectively a very short-growing season. So our cropping systems are based around maximizing the use of the rainfall because we don't have irrigation. And so basically then the farmers are ready for the first raindrops when they arrive at the start of the growing season. All of the machines, just like they are in the US, are guided by GPS uh, really precisely to within a couple of centimetres. The the seeds are planted in the soil and each seed goes alongside a a little grain of of fertiliser. And then the soil is very carefully moulded to make sure that every raindrop runs down to where the seed is. Uh, and this is done uh, very precisely during, f- for us, the autumn, so that would be um, April, May. And then uh, in preparation for that process, we use herbicides to kill the weeds. So in the old days, we used to turn the soil over to kill the weeds, um, but, but in, in, since about the last, since the 1970s, we've been using herbicides. And as I mentioned before, one of our big issues is that the weeds are now becoming resistant to the herbicides, and so we have to think carefully about how to do this and so therefore modern cropping systems are about herbicide management to try and prevent resistance from developing in in weed populations Uh, about the the processes of using different herbicides in in annual cycles so we we don't encourage the evolution of the resistance Uh, the maximization of rainfall as i've mentioned Uh, then at harvest time the collection of weed seeds so in the old days we used to run the harvester over the crop and and out the back would come all the straw which of course would include weed seeds and by definition those weed seeds are the seeds that are resistant to the herbicide because they're the ones that survived the whole process so the whole process was geared up towards generating resistant weeds so now we collect the seeds and we 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 manage the seeds by burning or by feeding to animals or by fermenting them for electricity and so on so we've got these sorts of processes that are are, are being geared up in the future farm project
2: and what about uh, there's some real emphasis on use of biochar or other types of soil amendments as well even though it's a no-till system or how does that integrate
1: so biochar um, is is very topical um, our, our biochar soil scientists who are testing it are, are, are still struggling with the evidence uh, in our environment that it actually is beneficial but they're persisting because the possibilities seem so high. Uh, there's no doubt that soil carbon concentration in our farm for example is about one third of what it was when, when Australia was colonised. So we, we've got an issue with soil carbon and of course if we can resolve that we'll end up taking a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere so it's a very interesting area and if we can also um, add amendments to that and then increase soil fertility it's even better so what happens there is that, is that basically uh, in our situation biochar is, is sprinkled on the surface and then is, is worked in but very slowly and not very deeply in, in the initial, in the initial um, instance
2: yeah, I know we've uh, played a lot with it here in, uh, in the States, especially even in Florida. And uh, really the big deal is cost and being able to produce biochar that can be uh, mobilized. And if we could do it in situ, it would be a lot better. But uh, in terms of just a, a, a water uh, absorbing surface that has lots of uh, root a- area for roots to integrate, seems like an interesting solution. And especially with carbon sequestration as being uh, such a critical question, could be a good angle going forward.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that, uh, and for us right now, it's, it's tantalisingly interesting, but just out of reach uh, as, a, as a solution. Uh, I heard a story here on the radio this morning about dung beetles that, that actually um, can be used to in- infiltrate biochar into soil. It was, it's a most interesting idea, and this is with dairy cattle, where you actually mix the biochar in with dairy cattle diets. Then the biochar goes through the system without being digested, of course, and comes out in the in the in the feces, and then the dung beetles bury the feces in the soil right down to maybe thirty or forty centimeters. And uh, I thought, well, that's a fascinating idea because that's a completely new way of of understanding how you can work these things into the soil.
2: Yeah, as, as if being a dung beetle wasn't already a dirtier job, you know. Now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, And what can you tell me about the other leg of the uh, Future Farm Project that deals with the biodiversity in Australia?
1: Uh, In Australia, farmers are responsible for about 60% of the national landscape. So by default, they're responsible for biodiversity. And and we need to make them a, a solution, not a problem in this sphere. We, we're we're um, we're losing our biodiversity very fast in Australia. We're very proud of our biodiversity. You know, if you ask a foreign student what's the first thing they think of when they think of Australia, they usually say kangaroo. And so that's sort of part of our national identity. And yet here we are, you know, cruelling it and making a mess of it and, and losing animals and plants very quickly. So we need to rethink how we do that. And... and uh, Part of the problem is the original agricultural policies of government here during the last century in which farmers were given land and just simply told and and legislated to make sure they cleared all of the native bush away so they could could make a farm. And yet there were many parts of most farms that are just not productive because there's too much rock or the the slopes are wrong and so on. And so they're not used for production anyway. And, And so really the native bush should have been left there. All, all, the, all, the, all the local species so on our future farm project what we're doing is we're we're taking non-productive areas and, and restoring the original ecosystem as best we can and then allowing nature to, to do the rest of the restoration uh, this allows us to to then um, I think recover quite a lot of the biodiversity across Australia if we do this cleverly so that's a very exciting part of the project Also, uh, as I mentioned before, we have native Australian plants that we are now showing to be very good forages for animals in in terms of methane emissions. And these these plants are native plants, so that means that Australian native animals like them. Uh, And so they they actually help us as a sort of halfway house between an absolute conservation area and an absolute productivity area. So you can have a halfway house where you've got native plants that do both roles.
2: So if people wanted to learn more about the Future Farm 2050 project, where can they find more information?
1: Well, if you search on, on uh, the web for, for UWA Future Farm 2050, uh, the site will come up. If you search for uh, UWA 2050, uh, Future Farm 2050 on Facebook, the site will come up, and I'd love you to do that and become friends, uh, because this helps us to spread the gospel around the world. Uh, so they're the main sources of, of internet uh, information.
2: That's perfect. I've been the uh, some of the sites, and they've been really informative and uh, really inspiring too. Because they, if one thing that's really a common thread throughout the entire program is the idea of innovation and thinking about these uh, really age old questions in different ways, and that's really an exciting way for all of us to continue to think about agriculture. Um, Thank you very much for being with us. Professor Graham Martin, he's a professor and chair at the School of Animal Biology at the University of Western Australia and the leader of the UWA Institute of Agriculture and the UWA Future Farm Project 2050. Thank you so much for being with us today on Talking Biotech. Thanks very much. My pleasure. And that's it for Talking Biotech today. And Professor Graham Martin reminds us that it's not all about the genes. Uh, certainly that's part of it, that the genetics are always part of the equation. But the genetics can be used in different production scenarios that sometimes augment or otherwise synergize with uh, the genetics that are there. So it's an opportunity for us to come up with better strategies to farm more effectively and the uh, future farm 2050 project at the university of western australia appears to be an innovative program that uh, maybe is something we all should take another look at so that's it for talking biotech today my name is kevin folta and thank you very much for listening we'll talk to you next week
0: thank you for listening to the talking biotech podcast please send your suggestions for guests comments, or questions to TalkingBiotech at gmail.com.
2: Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science.
0: You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra.